those moments. Now, we all probably know the right answer, right? That we should go to the Lord. And that's true. There's no better place to go. Our God is our refuge and strength, our very help uh, in times of trouble. But when you go to the Lord during those trials, what do you pray? I think most of us, if I can speak for myself, would pray, Lord, help for this trial to, to end. Help this hard time to be finished. Lord, deliver me from this, Father. And those are great prayers. We can find those prayers all throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms. But could it be that something else is happening when we go through the trials of this life? That God might have a bigger purpose for you beyond just getting you through that hard time? Could the trial in your life, which seems negative in the moment, actually become the best thing for you spiritually? Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, beginning in verse 1. This morning, I'm going to start a new sermon series on the book of 1 Peter. Throughout my life, I've, I think I've I know I've uh, preached various sermons from the, the book of 1 Peter, but I've never walked all the way uh, through it. I've never preached through the whole uh, book. But reading it again this week, there's just a lot of uh, themes and topics that are particularly relevant for our lives today as believers. So look at me, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In verse 1, we see that the author of the, this letter is, is Peter, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ. He was one of the 12 disciples. He was also in, in uh, Jesus' uh, tight inner circle. So he was there for Jesus' amazing miracles. He was there when Jesus was crucified, and he also met the risen Lord when Christ rose from the dead. Peter likely wrote this uh, letter around the year 60 A.D., 60 to 63 A.D., and it's likely that he wrote this letter from Rome. This letter doesn't mention Rome, but in chapter 5, Peter says that he sends his greetings from Babylon, which some people think is, a, let's say, a code name for Rome, since Babylon opposed God's people in the Old Testament, and the Roman Empire was hostile to the early church in the New Testament during the reign of King Nero. But we see in verse 1 that this letter isn't addressed to a particular church uh, in particular, as we see, for example, with Paul's letters to the Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, and so on. Now, in verse 1, we see that this letter is written to believers who are spread out, scattered, dispersed in the places of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, and Bithynia, which were all within the Roman Empire, all within Asia Minor. And as we will see in this letter, they weren't spread out because they were on holiday. They weren't spread out because they were Erasmus students studying abroad. 
No, they were spread out and scattered because of their faith. Here Peter calls them exiles. In other parts of this letter, he calls the believers uh, sojourners or, and also strangers. So now, they weren't literally in exile, but as we'll see in this letter, they were being persecuted for their faith. Therefore, it was because of their faith in Christ that they were outsiders and regarded differently. They were in the world, but not of the world. And as we'll see in 1 Peter, this came with a significant cost. But in verse 2, we have this rich theological uh, uh, statement of the working of the Trinity. We see God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know they are one in essence, one in substance, but existing in three persons. And they're all featured here in verse 2. Verse 2, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So in verse 1, Peter called these believers uh, elect exiles. To be elected is to be chosen, meaning that God in his rich love and mercy reached down and saved us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his wonderful grace. So we were elected, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What is foreknowledge? Well, it's not the same as knowledge. Foreknowledge is knowing something before it happens. So if I could alter the word to make it even easier for us to understand, I would use the word before knowledge, right? And before knowledge, it doesn't only mean that God can see the future. Before knowledge doesn't only mean that God can uh, predict the future. Rather, before knowledge is God's knowing of what will happen based on his good plans. In other words, before knowledge isn't like the weatherman guessing whether or not it's going to snow on Tuesday, right? He's guessing he doesn't know. Rather, God's before knowledge goes hand in hand with God's plans. This is the word, what the word elect means in verse 1. God chose these believers. God chose you. He chose me to be his sons and daughters according to his great mercy and love. That's God's, God the Father. Next is the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. It's the process, as we'll see in 1 Peter later, by which we become holy as Christ is holy. Now, in one sense, we are already holy because of what Jesus has done for us. Hebrews 10 says that we have been sanctified through the cross once and for all. It's, it's past tense. But it's also the process of becoming more and more spiritually mature. It's growing in obedience in our lives through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit shows us where to step out in faith, or the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And as we respond positively to the Holy Spirit, we grow in maturity, we grow in sanctification in Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. And lastly, we see Jesus, the Son. It says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Jesus said that whoever hears his words and obeys him is like a wise person equipped to deal with the storms of life, as we just sang a moment ago. And Jesus called us to obey everything that he commanded us. But he also says his commands are not burdensome, that his teaching is easy, his burden is light. 
Jesus calls us to follow him in all aspects, all aspects of our life with joy. And how do we do this? Verse 2 says, we do it through the blood of Jesus Christ, who went to the cross in love, who died for our sins, who was the sacrifice for our sins so that we could have peace with God through him. You know, I think it's fitting that Peter is writing to believers who've been scattered and spread out because here at Gospel Church, we are full of believers who have been scattered and spread out. Even those of you from Poland, many of you have moved away from your hometown and have settled here in Gdańsk. So we are scattered people, but together we are gathered people. And even though we're all from different places, we are united in the truth that Peter writes about in verse 2. You know, a few years ago, I was invited uh, to this, uh, to a dinner. And it was with um, all people from, from my home country, from the States. And I didn't really know anyone at the dinner. Uh, but the idea was, hey, since we're all from the same country, let's meet together uh, and enjoy our time together. And the time was nice. The, the people were nice. And of course, at the beginning of the meal, we had a lot to talk about. You know, where are you from? Which state are you from? Why did you come to Poland? Can, where can you buy this certain food from back home? When are you going to visit back home again? And so on. And the conversation was good. But after we went through those standard questions, we didn't have a whole lot to talk about. Sure, we were from the same country. Sure, we spoke the same language. Sure, we had all moved to Poland. But other than that, we didn't have a whole lot in common. But when I come here every Sunday, when you come here every Sunday, when we gather here, we might not be from the same country, we might not speak the same language, we might not like the same food, but we have the most important thing in common, that we have been chosen by God, the Father. We have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that creates a bond that transcends borders, that transcends cultures, that transcends languages. You know, maybe you have too, but I have had moments in my life in which I have hugged a fellow believer, held the hand of a fellow believer, prayed with a fellow believer, and we had no common language, right? We couldn't speak to each other at all. But in that moment, they ministered to me. Hopefully, I ministered to them because of the unity we had in Christ. What brings us here today isn't English. What brings us here today is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. My first point this morning from the text is the Lord has brought us together. The Lord has brought us together. No matter what your passport says, the Bible says that you are, we are citizens of heaven. The Lord has brought you here, so let us live as citizens of heaven. Be a part of this family of God. As we are in a new year, don't wake up every Sunday morning and wonder, should I go to church today or should I not? No, answer that question today. Resolve that right now. Say within your heart, yes, I commit to be with my family of God this year. There's going to be days when you're tired. There's going to be days when it's cold outside. There's going to be days when you have lots of homework. You might need to do this or you might need to do that. 
truth is, the enemy will always have an excuse ready-made for you to use. But instead, decide right now for you and for your household that you will regularly meet with the people of God this year, that you will invest in this community. After all, this world is tough enough as it is. We need the Lord and we need each other. What is your decision for 2024? Peter writes at the end of verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you, and may God's grace and peace be multiplied to us here today. Look at me at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter begins verse 3 with praise. Blessed be the God of our Father, uh, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a quote that uh, all good theology must begin and end with doxology. So theology, it means the study of God. Doxology uh, just means expressing praise to God. So to say the quote more simply, knowing God more must begin and end with praise. I like that because sometimes when we think about theology, we just think about knowledge, and knowledge is good. We should try to know as much about God as possible. But that knowledge should travel from our minds and into our hearts. It should, be, uh, should make us in awe of who God is, of, who, of what he's done and who he is. It should lead us in to worship. You know, this was the problem with the Pharisees in the Gospels. They had a lot of knowledge about God. They knew the Bible, you know, really well. But it was all in their heads. It hadn't moved down into their hearts. Therefore, they rejected Christ. Remember, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind. We must never lose the wonder of what God has done. May we say with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All good theology must begin and end with doxology. We praise God's name this morning. And why should we praise God? Well, Peter tells us, verse 3, here comes the theology. He says, according to his great mercy. Mercy means when someone shows compassion or forgiveness to someone instead of punishing that person for what they've done. Because God is holy, he could have rightly punished me for my sins, and that would have been fair. That's what I deserved. No one deserves mercy. Rather, mercy is a gift. It's an act of kindness and compassion. And it's God's great mercy that can reconcile lost sinners with the holy God, which has which he has caused us to be born again, Peter, Peter writes. In John 3, uh, Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born again. Jesus was talking about a new start. It's, it's regeneration and transformation. It's about becoming a child of God. That No matter what your past is, despite your sin, despite your mistakes, when you are a child of God, God loves you, God cares for you, because he is a good and good father. It says God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a dead hope, but a living hope. We have a living hope because we have a living God. The end of verse 3 describes our reason for having living hope. It says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Yes, Jesus did die on the cross for our sins, but three days later, he rose again. He triumphed over sin and death once and for all, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Therefore, as he lives, so our hopes live too. You know, sometimes in life, the hopes we have fade away. You know, there was a time in my life where I had hoped to learn uh, the Spanish language. There was a time in my life when I wanted to build a boat with my own hands. When I was a boy, I hoped of becoming a professional basketball player one day. And those, those were all good hopes. Maybe I could still uh, do some of those things. But the reality is, is a lot of those hopes have faded away with time. You know, maybe you can relate. You had hopes, but as time went on, a lot of those hopes have faded away. Maybe even some of those hopes have died. Truth is, no matter how much I train, I'm simply not going to become a professional basketball player. That hope is dead. But our hope in Jesus Christ is not dead. It's a living, breathing hope. It's a hope that doesn't fade away over time. Rather, it's a hope that grows stronger over time. You know, we all know this life can be full of disappointments. We've all put our hopes into things at some point that have disappointed us. Maybe you put your hope into a certain relationship. Maybe you put your hope into a certain job situation. Maybe you put your hope into a certain image or status. But all of those things can fail us. Maybe some of those things have even failed you. But as we sang a moment ago, our God does not fail us. Our God is faithful. He is our rock upon which we stand. Your hope in him is secure. You can trust him at all times because we don't serve the God of dead hope. We serve the God of living hope. We have a living hope because we have a living God. Verse 3 is, is so rich, but Peter continues in verse 4. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The truth gets better and better. Not only has God had great mercy on us, not only did he cause us to be born again, not only do we have a living hope in Christ who was raised from the dead, but verse 4 says that we have an inheritance. We talked about this uh, on Christmas Day. When we are saved, we are adopted into God's family. He is our father. We are his children. But we are not second-class children who only get the leftovers. Now, the Bible says not only are we his children, but we are also heirs. We have an inheritance in Christ. And verse 4 says this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In other words, nothing can happen to our inheritance from the Lord. No one can steal it. No one can take it away from you in court to claim it. It's rock solid. It says here that it is kept in heaven for you, guarded by the power of of God. You know, when we talk about salvation in the Bible, and here in these verses in First uh, Peter, there is a, a past, present, and future dimension to our salvation in Christ. As one author says, 
there is a sense in which we were saved from the foundation of the world through God's foreknowledge. Presently, we are saved by grace through faith, but ultimately we shall be saved when we enter into the fullness of the inheritance that is being reserved. So we are heirs today, right now in Christ, but the fullness of the inheritance will be revealed in heaven. It is kept in heaven for you, verse 4 says. So we don't just have a current hope in Christ, we have a future hope in Christ as well. And verse 4 says that this inheritance is rock solid. Or you could say God is giving you a guarantee. You know, sometimes I go to uh, the store and I'll buy something electronic or I'll buy an appliance. And when I go to buy it, the salesman will ask me if I want to pay some extra money uh, and buy a one or, or two year guarantee. And I always, you know, respond the same way. And so I say, oh, you, you think I need to, to pay extra for a two-year guarantee? And he says, yes, yes. And I say, oh, is it, is it already broken? And he says, no, no, I mean, it's not, it's not broken. And then I say, okay, well, you know, I don't, I don't need the, the guarantee then. And then he says, well, maybe something could happen uh, to it in the next year. And I say, oh, you're trying to sell me something that's going to break in one year? And he says, no, no, no. And I say, so you want me to spend more money to pay for a two-year guarantee on something that is definitely not going to break? And we both laugh. Usually I'm just having fun with him. I know he's just trying to do his job. You know, if someone wants to give me a free guarantee, I'll take it. But I'm not going to pay extra money just for a guarantee. Which leads me to my second point this morning. And that is God's guarantees are free, and God's guarantees don't expire. When it comes to salvation, it's free. You don't have to pay extra for it. You can't pay extra for it. It is a gift from God so that no one can boast. It is bought by the precious blood of Christ. We simply must receive this gift of salvation by faith. And when it comes to this guarantee, it is free as well. God gives us salvation through faith in Christ, and God guarantees our inheritance. It's not a one-year guarantee. It's not a two-year guarantee. It's not a guarantee you have to pay for. Rather, it's kept in heaven for you, guarded by God's power. It doesn't expire. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. He's the guarantor. He gives the guarantee, and he holds the guarantee for you. That's the truth of our salvation in Christ. That's the good news. So how do we apply that truth to our lives? Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, in this, you rejoice. Remember, all good theology must begin and end with doxology. We rejoice in these truths. We rejoice in the Lord, even in the midst of trials, which Peter mentions at the end of verse 6. So back then, Peter is, is, is writing this letter to Christians who were experiencing hard trials, Christians who were suffering. 
It wasn't easy back then. There was a lot of persecution. There was a lot of suffering. They had many difficulties and hardships. And even today, we experience trials and hard times too. You know, sometimes we look at someone else's trials and we think, well, my trial is nothing compared to his or her trials. Why do I feel so bad when there are so many other people who are suffering more than me, experiencing things worse than me? My trials seem small in comparison. And in one sense, I understand that. But in another sense, there's an element to suffering and trials that is relative. One person's trials are going to look differently than another person's trials. But trials are still trials, no matter how big, no matter how small. Truth is, all of us today is fighting some kind of battle, going through some kind of trial. And the Christian life is not a competition to to see who can suffer the most or try to minimize the trials you experience. Rather, as Peter says in verse 7, the Christian life is about understanding that when you go through hard times, when you go through trials, that underneath it all, there is a purpose. And when you trust in the Lord in those trials, you'll come out of those trials even stronger, and it will result in more faith, praise, glory, and honor to our Lord. In verse 7, Peter compares it to the process of getting pure gold. Now, when gold is put into the fire, uh, the purpose is not for the gold to be burned by the fire. That would be pointless. That would be purposeless. That would be a waste of time. No, the gold is put into the fire so that all of the impurities and imperfections can be burned off. The fire causes the imperfections to rise to the surface where they can easily be removed. And then you have pure gold. But you couldn't get pure gold back then without putting the gold into the fire. You couldn't get pure gold back then without testing it, without burning off the imperfections. The fire wasn't for burning. The fire was for refining. And that leads me to my third point this morning. And that is God has a greater purpose for your current trial. God has a greater purpose for your current trial. What Peter is saying is we might not not like the trials of this life, but they are not a waste. God is doing something in you as you go through those things. He's purifying you. He's refining you. He's growing you. He's getting rid of those imperfections so that you can be more like Christ. And James uh, 1 verses 2 through 4, we see the, the same picture. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James says you can have joy in the midst of trials because as you trust the Lord during those trials and battles, It produces within you the ability to keep going, to keep fighting the good fight of faith so that you can ultimately become more mature. And that doesn't mean we have to smile and act like everything is going great when in reality it's not. God is not calling us to be fake. Rather, he's telling you to have joy because you can know that there is a greater purpose in the midst of our lives uh, during trials. As the saying goes, all of us are going through some kind of battle, some kind of trial 
right now. And most of the time when we're going through those trials, we just want them to end. We just ask God for deliverance. In particular, it'd be great if God gave us the result that we wanted. But take a moment and think about your current battle right now. Your biggest problem, the, things that's, the thing that's discouraging you, the hard thing that you're, you're going through right now. Take a moment and try to consider that trial a little bit differently. Could it be that God is using this trial in your life in order to refine you, in order to remove some of those imperfections he wants you to get rid of? You know, maybe God is showing you right now that you are trusting too much in yourself and not enough in him. Or maybe he wants you to grow and be mature in a certain area of your life so you'll be ready for the next step of faith whenever that day comes. What is God trying to teach you right now? Do you have ears to hear? Maybe you've been praying for a miracle this whole time, but maybe at the same time you're not also learning what God wants you to learn through all of this. We see here in 1 Peter there's a purpose in every trial. You can't get pure gold without putting it in the fire. You can't be fully who God wants you to be without going through times of trials and testing. And Peter says here that a faith that goes through the fire is way more precious than gold. Verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says, despite the fact that we can't see Jesus, we still love him, we believe in him, and we rejoice with glory-filled joy. You know, sometimes you might hear people say, oh, it would be much easier to believe in Jesus if I could see him. And yet we know from the Gospels that's not necessarily true. Many people who met Jesus were the same people who wanted him crucified. Even Thomas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, someone who spent a lot of time with Jesus, said that he wouldn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead until he put his fingers through the nail holes. Jesus then told Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Hebrews 11 says, Faith is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance of things we cannot see. Paul told the Corinthians to walk by faith and not by sight. You know, there's many things that we believe in that we cannot see, right? I believe in gravity, even though I can't see gravity itself. But I can see the effects of gravity all around me. Like earlier when I tried to jump during the song, I, gravity came really quick. In the same way, even though I can't see Jesus, I can observe his work all around me. I can see how he has changed my life. I can see how he has changed the lives of people around me. I can see his hand in creation. I can see his, his, his nature in the true, the good, and the beautiful. I could go on and on. My, my point is, would our faith be stronger if we could actually see Jesus? Maybe, but maybe not. And Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. 
So we look back at, at, in time at Jesus, but in the Old Testament times, they look forward to Jesus' arrival to come. Look at these last verses with me, verses 10 through 12. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were, not, that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have been now announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you have, uh, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So in the Old Testament, the prophets spoke about and looked forward to the Messiah coming, although they, they didn't know exactly when he would come, die, and be resurrected. But of course, Jesus came as foretold, and the apostles preached this good news. The gospel came uh, through the Holy Spirit. In other words, the gospel was good news, but it wasn't completely new news. The, prophet, the prophets had prophesied about it long ago, and even the angels, it says, longed to understand everything that had been accomplished through Christ. So as we look back on what Christ has done, we can go deeper into what is life and work meant for our lives. So like most letters in the New Testament, in the beginning, there's a lot of theology. In the case of 1 Peter, Peter is reminding them of the glory of their salvation in Christ. And also in the midst of hard times and trials, we can go back to that foundation, to our foundation of salvation. Peter reminds them of the glory of God's saving work in their lives. In other words, God had a plan for them back then, and he still has a plan for us today as we encounter trials. The same God that saved them is the same God that saved you and will sustain you through whatever you're going through today. That's, through, that's true in salvation, but it's also true in the battles we face today. Because the truth is, you can't get pure gold without putting it in the fire. What bigger purpose does God have for you in the midst of the trial that you're going through today? I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward and lead us in the song of response. As we sing together, uh, we're going to have a time of invitation. If God is working on your heart this morning, this is a time for you to respond. We want to help you. We want to pray for you. And this morning, if, if God is working in your heart, I'm moving you to turn from your sins, to, to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. I invite you to come forward. If you're not experiencing the living hope that is in our Savior, today is the day of salvation. Why would you hesitate? You know, or maybe this morning you're going through a really difficult trial or a hard battle in your life, and you're, you're struggling. You're struggling to see God's deeper purpose in it. We would love to pray for you and encourage you. Don't go through this battle alone when you have fellow exiles, fellow citizens of the kingdom of heaven who would love to walk with you through those things. Or perhaps there's something else God has laid on your heart this morning. However God is leading, this is a time for you to respond. Uh, I'll be here in the front. Jerry will be here in the front as you come. Let me pray for us before we sing. Thank you, Lord, for your great mercy that has caused us to be born again to a living hope in your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Thank you that we are your sons and daughters, that we have an inheritance from you that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. Thank you that you grow us and sanctify us, Lord. Help us to remember your goodness as we go through the trials of this life. That we are not in the fire to be burned, but to be refined by you. Help us to know that. Help us to believe that. Help us to walk in that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Can we all stand?